0: We know that people are all different. But have you thought about how our brains can be different? And have you considered what that might mean for how we experience the world, how we are treated, and how we make change? Autistic people know what brain difference means. The way in which their brains have grown gives them different strengths and forms. And beyond the clichés we have seen on the television, autistic people are now increasingly speaking up for themselves to teach neurotypical people about autism, and to help create a world more friendly to and accepting of autism. Today we speak to one of Britain's leading autistic advocates, Robin Stewart. She has spent her adult life teaching kids and adults about autism, finding neurotypical allies in the battle to create more space for brain difference. We talk to her about her story, about her diagnosis at age 12 and the journey since. We explore what advocacy means and how the advocacy movement has grown. And we look at very tangible ways that spaces, like music venues, can be turned into inclusively conscious places, and we consider what that means for all the other places we live. This is very special for me. My nine-year-old son is autistic, and he told me he would like me to mention that today. It matters for him, for me, and I hope for all of us. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. We are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. So, Robin, welcome to the program. Hello. We are so delighted. I am so delighted to be in conversation with you today because both because I care so much about understanding autism and autistic people better, but also I think that that's a really important conversation for the broader change making and community and the community at large. So, Robin, what do you do that makes positive change in the world? What makes you a change maker?
1: Well, I think there's a few things. So one is that I write books for autistic people. And so, for example, I've written a book about periods called The Autism-Friendly Guide to Periods. And I think that it would be a book that would help a lot of other people that don't identify as autistic. I give talks to parents and teachers and social workers and other people that work with autistic people give talks to young people about autism, not just autistic young people, but also like school assemblies and things like that. And I run what I describe as an inclusive conscious series of gigs or music nights um, called Robin's Rocket, uh, which is not just focused about disability,
0: but making spaces inclusive for everybody. Wonderful. And we are going to talk about a whole bunch of those activities and the sort of method that exists behind them that makes them so successful. But what I want to spend a bit of time on is understanding why you do this work. Why have you chosen to become a self-advocate around autism? And in a way, I'm wanting to ask you, invite you to go all the way back. I sort of want to hear the, the, the Robin Stewart origin story, if, if that is possible.
1: Well, firstly, I would say that I'm more of an autism advocate because um, everyone is different. And um, Lorna Wing said, when you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. And that's true of neurotypical people. Like No one expects neurotypical people to be all the same. So my work is not really just about advocating for myself. I'm much more focused on advocating for the wider autism community. And what inspired me to do that was in school I was bullied And I was called a spastic and a freak and a retard and, you know, all those kind of names. And in high school, I um, was in a school that had a learning support center and that was dubbed the little spastic center. And I uh, would uh, be bullied in the toilets, like someone locked me in the toilets once, they'd peer over the cubicle at me while I was on the toilet, you know, things like that. And I know that that is a very common experience for autistic people. Then, uh, when I was 17, I was in a college, and like a TAFE, and uh, I was being bullied. And I got the opportunity to uh, sort of join forces with other people who have diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome. And there was a group that a tutor had organized for us. And we all said that we wanted a safe space and training for the teachers. And I volunteered to do the uh, training with uh, two other people because I just said, well, you know, why would we get, you know, some expert in inverted commas to come in and do training because they don't know our college? They're like experts where they come from, but we should do the training because we know about the college. And so, uh, yeah, we, we started doing training and uh, I started to learn about autism and I realized that autism, like, A lot of autistic people have problems with theory of mind, which is being able to understand other people's intentions, motivations and thoughts. It's not like you can't do it, it's just a lot harder for autistic people. It seems to come quite naturally for non-autistic people, but for a lot of autistic people it's very difficult and you have to learn how to do it. And uh, I realised that I didn't really understand neurotypical people. And so when the teachers were telling me that I was bringing bullying on myself, that I didn't really understand why the bullies were behaving in the way they were. And so I realized that if I educated the neurotypical people about autistic people, then they could educate me about neurotypical people, um, because it's got to be a two-way exchange. And that was like a light bulb moment for me. And I was just really lucky that a really lovely lady called Danusha Letyskinski, she, she was a tutor at the college at the time, and she really championed us. And when I'd done a training session, she said, oh, Robin, you're really good at this. This could be the start of your career and you know I was 17 and I I didn't really believe her I thought she was just being nice but um here I am like I think it's over 15 years ago now so I mean it's been become a career and so I started uh I went off and tried different jobs and none of them really worked out and what I found was that uh, like I know a lot of autistic people also experience this that I can work but I can't do a nine to five. I can't. May uh, I can probably do as many hours as other people, but it's spread over the whole week, not just and evenings and things. That I have to take breaks, and that people are very tiring, and I really like people, but they are really tiring. <laughs> and so, if I was in a work environment where I was around people all the time and around harsh lighting and things like that, then
0: that would be overwhelming. So I know that many in our audience who are listening to this episode don't know that much about autism. And as you described, you know, when you meet an autistic person, you've met one autistic person, right? Like it's, there's a lot of diversity in what is known as a spectrum, but I was wondering if you could explain some of the, the traits or capacities and uh, things you struggle with when you've got a non-neurotypical brain. So autism is known
1: as a neurodevelopmental condition, which just means that the brain develops differently when compared to non-autistic people or sometimes within the autism community. Non-autistic people are referred to as neurotypical people. And that in itself has a bit of controversy because, you know, people with ADHD and people with dyslexia, you could say that they weren't neurotypical, but equally they're not autistic either but yeah so basically autism means that your brain develops differently and uh, it can develop differently in good ways and in not so helpful ways and it's important to bear in mind that like 98% of the world is not autistic and so some of the problems that autistic people experience is because the world is set up for neurotypical people uh, non-autistic people and so that's worth bearing in mind uh so autistic people tend to be um very truthful and good at following rules and very good at sort of sticking to their morals um and uh very detail orientated and uh, you know like everyone is different but these are sort of the i suppose they're the things that are true stereotypes like they're things that are common you know everyone is different um, but so yeah so people can be very detail orientated people can be very um, task driven so that they will complete a task no matter how long it takes but then some of the difficulties that a lot of autistic people experience is um, theory of mind which I talked about which is probably more theory of mind towards non-autistic people than autistic people but basically what theory of mind is is being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes not literally but being able to understand what somebody else might be thinking so for example uh, if somebody asked you does my bum look bigger this dress the right answer is no because you want the person to feel confident in what they're wearing. And um, generally non-autistic people, they don't want an honest answer to that question. Because if you say, yes, your bum looks big in that, then the person is going to feel uncomfortable and they're probably going out somewhere and they're worried about how they look. Maybe you could suggest that they could try something else, but even that might be... Something that causes the other person anxiety, so it's theory of mind that is enabling you to be able to think about the other person's mental state, like why they're asking that question and what their intent is, and that they they need a confidence boost. And you're not really doing them any favors by telling them that their bum looks big, even if it does, because most people aren't going to be looking at people's bums in dresses anyway. Um, <laughs> so, but so that so that's the theory of mind piece. Also, autistic people could be very literal-minded, so like when people say. it's raining cats and dogs like if you look outside it's water it's there's no cats or dogs involved (laughs) or you know if the sat nav says sharp left like it it's nothing to do with needles or pins or anything. It means turn left quickly, I suppose. Uh, yeah, so, like, people can be very literal. Also, people can really struggle with, like, reading facial expressions and making eye contact. And many autistic people describe eye contact as being painful. So that so that also the sensory world can be different. So autistic people might experience, when compared to non-autistic people, they might experience the world more sensitive way in terms of their senses or under sensitive so hypersensitivity. so that's things like if you're um running a bath you might burn your hand uh when you feel the water because you can't tell how hot it is and so you might just get in and not realize and whereas hypersensitivity is like um like like when i the room that we're in now the lights are quite dim and for me this is really great because bright lights uh, are it's a lot of information for my brain to process and then my brain has to think about that and it doesn't let me concentrate on what I'm supposed to be concentrating on and also there's a nice purple light I quite like the purple <laughs> um, it's very soft lighting I like that so uh yes yeah, so sensory issues can be quite a big deal but uh, also um just i n- just under- yeah well the theory of mind piece uh, that that you can't understate that because it means that you struggle to really understand the world around you and make sense of it um, and particularly the world involving people and non-autistic people can their behavior can seem like a bit weird but then you know non-autistic people see sometimes they think autistic people's behavior is a bit weird so it works both ways like we're all just as weird as each other I think but um I think that uh and I mean like humans not just autistic people like all humans you know if you think about it some of the stuff that humans do is a bit weird mm-hmm. and so I think that autistic people yeah that's I suppose those are the main things but also uh, sometimes autistic people have repetitive behaviors like hand flapping or rocking and to be fair non-autistic people can have those behaviors too like uh, clicking the top of their pen uh, playing with their hair clicking their teeth things like that but maybe for autistic people people notice more maybe because there's so many other things that people notice are different about autistic people, or maybe it's that the behaviour is a bit more pronounced. In the autism community, that behaviour is called stimming, S-T-I-M-M-I-N-G. And stimming um, is uh, basically a repetitive movement. And I did some research into why people stim, and for the majority of people, it's a coping mechanism, and it's actually really important for them to manage different situations. And obviously, the reasons people stim... Uh, varies person to person but like in my survey of 100 people 72% of people had been told not to do it but it was very obvious from the figures about why people did it that the majority of people it was a coping mechanism and so if you take someone's coping mechanism away then they're then they're going to struggle and they might not be able to cope in that situation.
0: Yeah you you can see how if people could be accepted for being different things could be quite fine but if people are not accepted for the differences that they have that they could find everyone could find themselves in a difficult situation.
1: Yeah I think I'm very lucky because both my parents are autistic that's how they identify that um, neither of them have a diagnosis they're in their 60s and so pro- probably if they were young people now they'd probably get a diagnosis but they choose not to, to seek a diagnosis but I certainly you know I'm not into retro diagnosing people or putting labels on people but that that identification comes from them and I think I was so I think I was lucky because I had their experience and Mm. knowledge but I think if you're autistic and your parents are not autistic I think that for parents it can be really difficult because your brain thinks differently to your child's and so trying to learn a new neurotype like because when you when your child gets diagnosed you might not even know there's different neurotypes so then you yeah. have to learn all of that stuff i think that's really difficult and i think a lot of parents they don't get credit where credit is due because actually it's really hard like I find it hard to understand neurotypical people so I'm sure neurotypical people find it hard to understand autistic people and um, actually there's some parents that they do really amazing things And but then you know like on social media sometimes autistic people are not very kind to them because they say, oh, you know, you're using the wrong kind of language, like you should use identity first, which means saying that your child is autistic versus versus person first, which is saying your child has autism. Um, and, uh, and I think that, you know, that because social media then becomes hostile and it becomes not a safe space for people to ask questions, I think then that creates more opportunity for myths to arise and myths are a very bad thing with autism because it means that people don't understand so like one myth is that you can cure autism with like bleach or you know like autistic people don't need bleach
0: no they just need a bit of understanding Uh, yeah exactly yeah Yeah, because, you know, like full disclosure, right, my nine-year-old son has um, autism, is autistic, I'm going to say both, (laughs) the person-centred and identity-centred frame, and I did ask his permission this morning whether it was okay to mention that, and he said, yes, mum, please mention that, so... I feel it's okay to mention it. But I think it's true that the, sort of to understand across these different brain types and, and learning to just understand how he's seeing the word differently, that's, you know, it's 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 just a new experience. You know, it was a new experience. It certainly made me much richer, actually, like is an a extraordinarily good experience, but it's not always easy either. So I want to ask, you know, we've got, Greta Thunberg in the press, proud, 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 proud about the fact that she's autistic and that, that, that her autism has given her the capacity to make great change around climate change. And I know that brain differences create such uh, creativity, right? Everything you've described is so immensely creative in terms of the qualities of autism. I was going to ask you, how has your creative brain given you a, a different kind of approach to making change?
1: Well I guess that I've been able to think in a way that I'm sure other people must have thought these things I'm sure it's not just me but maybe the fact that I'm autistic and maybe I'm I'm, I'm kind of like a I think they might say a go-getter like I'm somebody that like if if I want to do something then I'll find a way to do it and I will ask questions and I don't. Maybe I'm like a dog with a bone. I don't lay off it, <laughs> you know. Like if I'm, you know, if I'm focused on doing something, then I just focus on it and I just keep asking questions. So I think some of it is is that, and maybe that's my like autism focus I suppose. But I think also maybe that uh, I see the world in maybe a very literal way. And maybe neurotypical people see the... Or non-autistic people, they see the bigger picture more easily. So, like, for me, it seemed really obvious to ask autistic people about stimming. Like, because I was hearing non-autistic people talk about how you know their thoughts about stimming and I'm just like well you obviously haven't asked 100 autistic people so I'll ask 100 autistic people and then if you want to disagree with me then you can go ask your own 100 autistic people like that's <laughs> fine like I saw it as a sort of as a friendly challenge like not in a I didn't want to cause arguments with people but I wanted them to think differently and also to listen to autistic people's voices like My surveys are always—I always aim at 100 people, because 100 people within scientific research is a lot of people, and uh, it's you know in the world of autism is not really a lot of people, but it is quite a lot of people. You know, for for non-autistic people, they they believe that to be statistically significant. I think so. I think that I think there's that, but I think that maybe because I'm part of the community, that I. I could see that sometimes the autism and uh, intellectual slash learning disability communities, that they're sort of like silos, in, uh, in and they're not meaning to be, but so like one of the reasons I started Robin's Rocket was because I could see that uh, there were bands who were just playing within the intellectual disability or learning disability uh, or autism uh, music scenes, And that meant that they weren't playing to mainstream audiences because most of the people that came to those gigs were autistic or had an intellectual and disability. And so to me, it seemed like, well, I know that for bands to survive in the UK, that they have to sell merchandise. So you need fans and you need the fans to tell their friends about you and you know, for it to build that way. And the only way of doing that is to be playing in front of as many people as possible. So if you're only playing to learning disability, intellectual disability, autism gigs, that's a small number of gigs compared with the number of gigs that happen, you know, that are just like for everybody. And so I just thought, well, I could just put mainstream bands and autistic slash intellectual slash learning disability membered bands into you know onto the same bill and just be um, mindful about inclusion for them but also actually you know as a woman uh, with within um, my field is experimental music and there are women in that field but there's also loads of men and so you're often you know outnumbered by men and that's like not a problem for me but I can see that, that might make other people feel uncomfortable and also the gender spectrum is much wider than just male and female there's a lot of different gender identities well what if you fall into one of those gender identities or not fall but you know what if you identify as a you know, other than male and female. Like, what if you identify as non-binary or genderqueer or genderfluid? And, like, you know, if you think about, like, toilets and things like that, then that's not particularly accessible. And the same as, um, you know, what if you speak English as a second language or you're slightly harder hearing and you might struggle to follow what's going on because it's all spoken generally at gigs. When people are speaking, they don't know how to speak to a microphone properly, so so there's not necessarily very audible anyway and like they put the microphone too close or too far away or you know whatever and so uh, maybe it would be better if you could identify what was happening with shapes and colours because you could think about that in any language they're pretty universal like I mean everyone has seen a triangle and a square and a circle Um, so so that's kind of I think that to me that seemed very obvious and when I've talked to other people they're like oh yeah well because you know circuit boards and um you know if you think about a plug like plugs colour coded you've got your ground which I think is green or brown and then the positive wire which I think might be red and then the negative wire which I think might be blue you know don't quote me on that but, <laughs> but like you know plugs and electronics in general they're colour coded and that's normal and yeah, like capacitors are all shaped to look the same way. They they have a certain shape. You don't really get capacitors that are square. They're all kind of ovals, like sort of flattened oval. You know, so th- within the wider world, there are colour coding and shape coding. It's not like I invented it or anything. Um, and or like the zones of regulation, for example.
0: Yeah. So what I and you know, what I think is like what you're saying here about what you've done with Robin's Rocket is something that is even more radical than just an intervention into the music scene. Like, because what I'm hearing is it's like an approach to questions of identity or particularism, and bringing to that space an emphasis on the universal as well—that that we are all different, and some of us, some for some of us, those differences have caused real challenges in our lives. Um, but also there are there are universal languages that can connect each other. They don't reduce who we are. They allow us to express our differences as powerfully as possible. How have you seen? I mean, I guess, how, how is is that broader sense of the importance of the specific but also the mainstream um, identity but also the universal been important in the change-making that you've done? Well, what I'd say was that Robin's Rocket
1: is like a vehicle It literally is. It's a rocket, right? Yeah, it's a rocket, exactly. (laughs) And then I'd say the universe is in is inclusive conscious. And that universe, that universe, like you could have anything within that. You could have an inclusive conscious supermarket. I mean, it doesn't have to be a rocket. And certainly, I'm encouraging other people to make inclusive conscious spaces and I really don't want them to call it Robin's Rocket. It's Mm -hmm. like Robin's Rocket, like you need a Robin with a Y and that's me and a Rocket, we have a homemade spaceship, like for Robin's Rocket to happen. But the principles of inclusive consciousness could be applied to absolutely anything and it's just about including people I think um that I've forgotten the question
0: no 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 it's exactly what I was describing I guess is that relationship between the specific and the broad you know so you're saying that the sort of method I guess the the way in which you work to do that is with this philosophy or practice of inclusive consciousness this yeah, exactly. yeah
1: yeah because because I was like like uh, This is a bit controversial, but uh, like I don't actually particularly want to go to autism-friendly gigs or relaxed performances because I like the bright lights and I like the loud music. For me, that sensory, almost sensory overload is part of going to a gig. And there's a lot of things, I guess you'd say, that would mitigate it for me, like if, if it was too much, you know, like earplugs and ear defenders and sunglasses. So there's a lot of ways of reducing sensory overload if that were to happen. But I actually really love going to get but I also love the fact that I'm just with everybody else and that you know just because I'm autistic I don't I don't just like I mean it's not that I don't like hanging out with other autistic people but I mean neurotypical people don't all get together just because they're neurotypical. Like, they don't all go to gigs because they're all, oh, yeah, we're all neurotypical at this gig, you know? Like, we're all together. <laughs> like, neurotypical people don't do that, so why would autistic people particularly want to do that? Like, I like the music I like, and Robin's Rocket is about improvised, experimental, kind of left-field music, and so there's quite specific and quite niche, and those gigs are, you know, like, for me, it was just a response of, like, why well, my you know, my mates are in these bands that are really good, and, like, I could just put them on with other people and that's happened and we're at um, Cafe Oto which oto is japanese for sound and cafe oto i think is probably known all all over the world for experimental music like it's a bit like how most people have heard of Ronnie Scott's you know the jazz club in Soho in London um i think people within the sort of experimental music world that they'll know about Cafe Oto. So it's kind of a big deal to get gigs there. And also uh, in November 2019, we were part of the EFG Jazz Festival programme, which, yeah, I sent a lot of emails about that. I made it happen with a bit of help. But that really put us sort of on the central stage. And then, you know, as a consequence, I've been invited to speak in Finland about Robin's Rocket uh, at Accessibility Arts Conference. So, like, it's been, yeah, it's been kind of amazing that, that idea of just getting people together has sparked lots of things so like one of the things is there was this band that played l- at the last robin's rocket who i absolutely love called jamaica and um jamaica have a mix of people but they're they come from an art center which is aimed at supporting uh artists with intellectual disabilities and autistic artists to develop their practice in west london and but you know to me I mean I know them because because we're part of the same music scene that's how I heard of them but I mean for me like I just couldn't believe that they weren't getting regular gigs like to the wider world that seemed silly to me because they're so great so I invited them to play and then Cafe Oto has booked them for June next year excellent Um, and so like so that's like real change that like now they're getting like I mean they had mainstream bookings before Robin's Rocket it's not like
0: it really you didn't find them
1: no 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 but still still for me that's a big outcome because playing at Karioto like people take you seriously when you can say you've done that and it may well lead to other things and it will mean that their fan base will grow and they'll be able to sell more merch and that that will help them to you know make more music
0: Hmm. So, I want to also ask you. I want to shift gears, and I want to I want to talk about autism advocacy, and in particular, like I do, I'm interested in the question of self advocacy. But I know that you describe yourself as an autism advocate for a, for a broader space. Right? That is very big in the US, and it's very big in the UK. It's you know we're sitting in Australia right now. It's not as big a space in Australia. I was wondering um, if you could tell us a little bit about the movement and how this space for people being publicly visible advocates for themselves and their brain difference, how that grew.
1: Yeah, so in the 90s, um, a few people like, and this is just off the top of my head, I'd have to like fact check, but I'm pretty sure this is right. Um, Leanne Holiday-Willie from uh, America, Donna Williams from Australia, Maybe it was also Wen Lawson, who um, was Wendy Lawson, and he is British, but he lives in Australia now. But they started uh, this sort of international autism group, like in the 90s, like sort of 93, 94. Around that same time uh, books started to come out that were written by autistic people like Donna Williams uh, Somebody Somewhere and Nobody Nowhere, they're called. And yeah, autistic people started to join together and some of that was because the internet became more readily available uh, and, you know, like Windows 95 had Internet Explorer I think Windows 95 was the first edition that came, like, preloaded with with uh, Internet Explorer, so people, because they had the internet and email and they had forums and things like that people started to connect with each, with each other, and uh, I know that people met up and they started this international organisation and autistic people started giving talks and you have to also remember that the sort of political historical backdrop of this is that in 1994 Asperger's syndrome which is autism without an intellectual disability and without a language delay which means that a person learned to speak at the same time as their peers that that was first added into the DSM the diagnostic statistical manual and so therefore it became a diagnosis and it meant that people could be recognised as autistic and before that people were misdiagnosed with psychosis and things like that. So that changed things because it meant that that people were understood in, in a way that they hadn't been previously. But, yeah, so I think those two things became very important. But also because the parents' movement, you know, like if you look at the logos for the National Autistic Society, which... I you know off the top of my head i think that they were started in the 60s that the national autistic society it, it was like a crying child was their logo oh. and you know like it was there was this big division between parents and autistic people and and then this is like from from what i know from history and stuff like i'm 33 so i was only like 8 in 94 Um, so it's not like I was there at the time but you know like there is still that division between parents and autistic people to a certain extent in in ideology but certainly then it was much more polarised because people weren't so connected and people weren't so able to share information and I think people like Wen and Leanne and Donna that they wanted autistic people's voices to be heard because parents were looking at the world through non-autistic eyes and so they maybe they didn't always understand their children so like whilst now we think it's awful that there was a logo with a crying child like to them the way they saw it was that their child was like I mean maybe their children were experiencing sensory overload which could make you cry and so they but they didn't know what sensory overload was or you know I mean again I wasn't there in the 1960s so I'd you know, I don't know for sure, but that, that is my interpretation. And over time, the autism movement, people got more connected and people started putting on conferences. Uh, and there's a couple of big autism like, made by autistic people for autistic people conferences. Uh, one's called Ort Treat, which is in America, and one's called Autscape, which is in the UK. Oh, and there was also this guy, Jim Sinclair. Yeah, he was... I think, so here I think he was the fourth one. So there was Jim Sinclair, Wayne Lawson, Donna Williams and Leanne Holiday-Willie, and I think they all connected together and they started to work together to sort of give autistic people a voice. And then over the last sort of 20 or 30 years, people have, you know, continued that and it's become easier for autistic people to be listened to. And, uh, like, I mean, Wen was saying, and I think this is still true for a lot of autistic people when they start out, that when Wen started giving talks, that Wen was just paid with flowers and chocolate, oh, which, God. you know, like, this is <laughs> this is a job. <laughs> yeah. um, and everyone has to earn money, and Wen has a really valuable contribution, and you'd never think of doing that to a psychologist, you know. so And Wen actually said that. I interviewed him recently. He said that he trained as a psychologist because... People like weren't like they didn't they weren't taking him seriously basically yeah they weren't willing to pay him to do things and so he felt like he needed to go to school and become a psychologist so people would would pay attention to him.
0: And to what extent do you think that those movements are the reason why things have changed so much for kids and adults today? I think that's probably...
1: The, the the whole autism self-advocacy movement is key. I think without it, I don't think things would have changed because I think there's some things that... Like, I will never know what it's like to be non-autistic, and so I think that non-autistic people, you know, they're, never gonna, they're not going to wake up tomorrow and be autistic. So I think, like, that autistic people can explain things and understand things in a different way to non-autistic people, and I think that that can really help, and I think it has helped. Yeah. So, yeah, so I don't think... I don't think things would be like, I mean, in lots of parts of the world, still autism is, you know, seen as like bad genes or negative, negatively, but I I think that we've moved forward and a really good book that talks about autism history, not specifically just self-advocacy, but it does mention it, is Neurotribes, which is written by this guy called Steve Silberman.
0: And I think that's really good. Excellent. So something that people can read in addition to the books that you've read and checking out your website too, hey? Yeah. So my final question is, you know, you've done a lot of change-making in this space, you know, you've you've pushed forward a lot of change. What have you learnt through that process about what it takes to make change? What is there a, Is there a key lesson that comes to mind?
1: I think, for me, the probably the key lesson for making change is that you have to learn to communicate with other people what change you want to make and why. It's like when I talk about inclusive conscious spaces, like... When you explain what that means, like people get it and they think, "Oh, that's a good idea," and I'm sure other people must have thought of these things. But I think the other thing is, is that it it takes a lot to to well, like part of making changes to stand up and shout a lot. I mean, not at people, but you know, to like you have to believe in yourself, and then you have to you have to be able to speak up, and you know, not like can't remember what situation I was in, but I was using photo journeys, which is just when you take photos of a journey and then you use them to remind yourself of how to get somewhere. And I, yeah, other people just thought that that was like really novel, and I'm like, no, it comes from the autism community; it's they normal here. And I, you know, just had to feel confident in myself that I knew other people use this, and I didn't invent it or anything like that. It's just you know normal and then when I spoke to people within the autism community they were like oh yeah photo journeys <laughs> yeah been using those for 30 years which I knew already but I sort of just needed the comfort from other people to because sometimes when you're making change you end up in spaces that are completely new and I think they might feel a bit hostile but most people I've found you know think that people should be included. And because when you talk about inclusive consciousness, because you're talking about all types of people, you know, like uh, people across the gender spectrum or people across, you know, speaking different languages or, you know, anything like that, then pretty much everybody has some connection to that and that that pretty much everybody at some point has felt like an outsider, whether it be when they went from primary to secondary school or whatever. So people have had that experience and so... Instantly they empathise with it, but it's just getting to that point of having that conversation and making sure that they understand. So I think, yeah, those are probably the two things.
0: Yeah, fantastic. So knowing, like what I hear in that is knowing that your community has your back, even if you're out in front.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like it's like, cause to me, it's not anything I've particularly invented. I've just taken on board what I've learned and Tried to make the world a better place, tried to make positive change.
0: Yeah, and we're so glad that you are. Thank you for coming in, Robin. It's been awesome. Thank you. Changemaker Chats are hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Our Changemaker Chats are produced by me. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerer. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. We are also supported by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. And don't forget to register for one of our masterclasses if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of change making.